0: We're back to our series, uh, Human. Who does God say that I am, and why does it matter? And our topic this week is summarized by the statement, I am designed to have loving relationships with other people. So we see the first evidence of this, uh, the fact that we are made for loving relationships with other people. We see the first evidence of that right in the very beginning of the Bible, in the story of creation. Uh, There's a repeated phrase in chapter 1 of Genesis that uh, as each part of the creation is described, uh, it pauses and it says, and then God saw that it was good. And that's repeated several times. And then God saw that it was good. And then at the end of the chapter, it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. But in chapter 2, the Bible explains that initially there was one part of the creation that was not good. Here's what it says, Genesis chapter two, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Because you see, at this point in the story, God had only created one human. And that wasn't good. What was the problem? People are made to have relationships with other people, to love one another. And when Adam had no other people to relate to, that part of what God had made him for was missing. Even our physical bodies uh, were specially designed for relationships. There's one example I want to tell here about, uh, that illustrates that fact. It's that under the skin on our faces, we have what are called subcutaneous muscles. Now, most of the muscles in our bodies are made to move bones. They move our skeleton and on the joints and things. But these uh, little muscles, these thin little muscles in our faces are used to move our skin. And uh, it does that in order to create a huge variety of facial expressions. And we use these muscles to change the shape of our eyes. We change the shapes of our lips and our mouths. We raise and lower our eyebrows. We wrinkle our nose, wrinkle our foreheads, all kinds of things. We have 28 of these little muscles uh, in our faces that make it possible for us to make a huge variety of facial expressions. Now, there are some animals that have a few similar muscles, but none of them have anything close to the control that we have of our faces. And so why did God give us all those cool little muscles? Well, it's so that we can convey the great variety of our emotions to one another um, through our amazingly expressive faces. Because you see, this is just one example of the way that God designed us, including our bodies, to make interpersonal connections to one another. We are designed for relationships, and especially we are designed for loving relationships. God made us so that we can love one another. Now, the Bible isn't really saying anything all that unique and telling us that we should love one another. The greatness of love is actually a very broadly accepted idea all around the world. In fact, in 1969, John Lennon and the Beatles famously sang that all you need is love. But is that really true? The internet is not too sure. I did a quick Google search and I discovered that there are some people who think that we need just a little bit more. I suspect some of you might agree that all we really need is love and a good cup of coffee. Or some of you might relate more to the notion that all we need is love, but a little chocolate now and then doesn't hurt. And of course, all the princesses out there know that all we need is love and a tiara and maybe a cookie. And I don't quite follow this next one. I'm not sure what they're thinking here, but some people say all we need is love and a cat. I'm much more sympathetic with the next group who says all we really need is love and a dog. Um, But of course, Dwight Schrute knows that the whole idea that love is all you need is simply false. The four basic human needs are air, water, food, and shelter. So I think we can conclude that the internet is a little confused on this whole idea of love. And so let's take a look at what the Bible has to say uh, about this subject. So a a key section from the Bible that we're going to spend most of our time in today. So if you've got your Bible, this is probably where you're going to want to turn to is in uh, the book of First John, a couple of paragraphs there from the fourth chapter of First John, and I'm going to read starting from verse 7. First John chapter 4 and verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Uh, and then skipping down to verse 20. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love love their brother and sister. Now, there's some important questions that we need to think about and get some clarity on in order to really understand what the Bible is teaching us here. But as we seek to understand just what the Bible means here and what it means to love one another, uh, let's not forget that the point of all this, the point of talking about uh, the Bible's uh, teaching here is not just that we would understand the Bible's instruction to love, but that we would follow it. Right? So there's really no point in studying the Bible's instructions and studying the teachings of the Bible unless we are committed to do what the Bible says we're going to do. So let's just remember that as we, as we talk about this. But So here's, there's two key questions that I want to answer this morning. The two key questions are, who are we supposed to love? And then what does it mean to love? So I'm going to talk about who first. Uh, here in 1 John, it talks about loving one another. And I think the first thing we can say uh, from that is that we're not talking here about love in the romantic sense, right? Uh, This is supposed to be a love that uh, goes beyond uh, the scope of just your marriage relationship, your wives and husbands. The Bible is talking about a love here that is to be shared with a much wider group of people. And of course, it is true that as Christians, we're supposed to have a special connection and a special bond of love with other Christians who the Bible calls our brothers and sisters in Christ. But can we limit the instruction to love one another only to Christians, or are we also to love those who are outside the church? Probably not many of you will be surprised when I tell you that the Bible says we must extend our love beyond the church. Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, Jesus said, "'You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy.'" Do not even pagans do that? The Gospel of Luke tells us uh, about an interesting conversation that Jesus had with another Jewish expert in the Bible uh, about the meaning of the phrase, love your neighbor. It's that idea love your neighbor comes up a few times in the Bible. And, and Jesus and the other Bible teacher both agreed that the Bible's command to love your neighbor was the second greatest commandment in the Bible after loving God. And Luke tells us this. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. In other words, this guy wanted to believe that he was already doing enough, that he was already loving his neighbor. He wanted to justify himself by limiting the definition of neighbor uh, In some way. he He wanted to limit it. So he asked Jesus this question. And Jesus did what he often did in order to answer the question. He answered it by telling a story. And here's Jesus' story to answer that question about who is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love. He said, a man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you next time I'm here. Now, Jesus says, which of the three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now, in order to really understand Jesus' story here, we need to understand a little bit about what a Samaritan was to the Jewish audience that Jesus told this story to. See, Samaritans and Jews were not on friendly terms at all. Uh, A modern parallel might be the way that most Americans get along with radical Muslims. We don't like them very much. They don't like us very much. But in Jesus' story about who we're supposed to love, he has the priest, who should have been the good guy, the hero of the story, he has that guy in the role of the unloving jerk who walks by without helping. And he puts the Samaritan in the role of the loving hero of the story. Now, Jesus could have made his point by giving us an example of a good Jew who showed love even to a despised Samaritan. Or in our modern example, he could have told, you know, the story of a good American who showed love even to a radical Muslim. But Jesus tells it as the radical Muslim who shows love to a needy American. Why did he cast the story in that way? Why did he make the bad guy the good guy? He did it in order to blow people's minds. <laughs> That's why he wanted people to be shocked. The reaction Jesus was going for was something like, what, my neighbor is supposed to, that I'm supposed to love is a Samaritan? And wait a minute, the Samaritan is the hero of the story? The role model here is a Samaritan? That's the reaction that Jesus wanted. And Jesus' story here, this is the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, who am I supposed to love? And what's the answer that the story gives? The people that you are supposed to love are not only the people who are like you and those who share your political views, or who share your religion, or your race, or your sexual orientation, Christians are told to love people who don't love us. Jesus tells us even to love our enemies. So, who is it okay not to love? Who's not included? The person who gossips about you? The person who cheated you in a business deal? Are we supposed to love them? How about gay rights campaigners or radical Muslims or convicted felons? The teaching of the Bible is clear. We are to love even our enemies. I'm not saying all those people in all those categories I just mentioned are necessarily our enemies, but they are examples of the kinds of people that we sometimes find really hard to love. But Jesus tells us that we need to love all people we cannot love only people who think like us or only people who love us. But here's the sad fact. That is exactly the image that we Christians have today with large numbers of people in our society. They see us as only loving people who are just like us and fighting against everyone who disagrees with us. We need to change that perception. We need to show the world that we are followers of a God who loves people. Two questions that we're trying to answer this morning. The two questions are who are we supposed to love and what does it mean to love? So, who should we love? We are to love all. Not just the people who love us and agree with us, we are to love like the Good Samaritan. We are to love even our enemies. But what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? Now, that's a big question. And really, a complete answer is really hard to give. But if we come back to the passage from 1 John that we looked at earlier, God tells us some pretty important things about what it means to love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when John thinks about love, he thinks of one great example of love, God sending Jesus. These verses, uh, chapter 9 and 10, they're parallel verses. They're two ways of saying essentially the same thing, and together they sound a lot like a definition. It's saying, this is love. So what is the definition of love? God sent his son. The ultimate expression of God's love was Jesus coming into the world because in the coming of Jesus, God himself came into the world as a human. And that's, that's a really astonishing thing. A lot of us have heard it enough times that it doesn't really surprise us anymore. We're used to it. But, but uh, man, God became human. That is amazing. And notice that, God did this uh, showing his love for us despite our lack of love for him. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So God didn't send Jesus to save us in response to our love for him or for anything that we did. In another place, the Bible puts it like this. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were rebelling against God, he loved us. God loved us despite the fact that we aren't very easy to love. So God came down into the world as a man. Amazing. But it's the reason that Jesus came that really makes this the ultimate act of love. John describes the reason in both verses 9 and 10 and also a few verses later in verse 14. And this is what it says. It says, God sent his son that we might live through him as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and to be the savior of the world. So what does it mean to say that Jesus came so that we could live through him? It means that without him, we would die. The Bible teaches that because of our sinful rebellion against God, we are headed for eternal death. But Jesus came so that we might escape eternal death and have eternal life with him instead. And verse 10 says, Jesus' coming gives us life. It says that as uh, he was sent as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, it was as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. The penalty that we deserved for our sinful actions was paid by Jesus as he sacrificed himself for us. And that's why in verse 14, it can say he is the savior of the world. What has he saved us from? He saved us from the eternal death by sacrificing himself for us, atoning for our sins. And because our sins have been dealt with, it is now possible for him to give us eternal life. This is love. God came to earth as a man to be our savior by sacrificing himself on the cross for our sins so that through that sacrifice we can live. Now, if that is our definition of love, the question then becomes, how does this help us to know how we are supposed to love one another? On the one hand, we we can't really do uh, what God did. Jesus coming as a human and dying for our sins is unique and it's way beyond anything we could do. But what principles of love, what kind of definitions of love can we learn from this ultimate example of love? The first thing we see is that love isn't just a good feeling. Love takes action. The Bible does not say, This is love. God had warm, fuzzy feelings for us. No, if the Bible, if, if if love doesn't lead us to action, it's not really love. Another thing that's clear is that love seeks the good of the other person. See, God's love expressed itself in a tremendous act of sacrifice. By him, for our benefit, we needed God. God didn't need us. God's love met our greatest need and at a great cost to himself. Jesus left heaven and came to earth and died a horrible, humiliating death in order to meet our need. If we are to love like God loves, our acts of love must be for the good of the other person. And it must cost us something. And that's where we often fall short on love. We resist the cost. All the different, there's a, a variety of costs that we we have, but but we don't want to pay that price. We don't want to, and so we don't love. Now, in addition to that ultimate example of God coming to save us, if we go back a little bit in First John to chapter three, there's another key example of what it means to love. This is First John chapter three, verses sixteen to eighteen. Here we see the same two principles that we saw in chapter 4. Real love takes action, and real love seeks the good of the other above our own. John's example of the kind of action that love motivates is helping those who have physical needs. The Bible's quite direct. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? In other words, if we have some money and we see someone in need and we don't do anything to help, that is proof that we know nothing of God's love. Love must act. If we're going to love one another, including our enemies, it's not enough to say that we love them or to feel that we love them. We have to actually do something to love them. We have to seek their good and meet their need Even when, or especially when, it costs us. If we are the people of God, if we know God and have been born of God, loving one another is the necessary result. Absence of love for one another is proof that we are not the people of God. So here it is again in verse 20, chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What the Bible is saying in all this is that the love of God and the love of one another are inseparable. If we don't love one another, we don't love God. And we don't know God's love for us. It's hard for us to love an invisible God who we can't experience with our senses. But John says that it's when we love one another that we have our greatest experience of God. It's not by singing or praying uh, that we experience God's love and God's love is made complete in us. It says, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions. It's with actions that we love. And when we do those loving actions, we experience what it is to be loved. In conclusion, I want to be as clear and specific as I can about exactly what it means that we were made to love. Exactly how are we supposed to love the people around us? First of all, we need to know, uh, we, need, we need to know and have relationships with other people. You can't really love people that you don't know. Even if you're an introvert, it is not good for the man to be alone. So you need to take those risks and have those relationships with people. And now it's hard to be too specific about exactly what we need to do because as we seek the good of others, um, meeting other people's needs, there's so many different things that people need. What some people need is a sympathetic friend to listen to them. What some people need is for you to shovel their driveway. Hundreds of big and small ways to show love to people. So look for those ways, especially look to ways to love like the Good Samaritan, showing love even to people who are not like us, even our enemies, by meeting their needs. And let me give you two specific ways to follow this command by meeting needs that are very widespread. So these are things that many people need. First is the example that John uses there in chapter 3, where he says, if you have material possessions and you see someone in need, help them. Help your friends who have financial needs. Give and volunteer at a local charity. Give generously to Christian organizations like Samaritan's Purse or World Vision or Compassion or somebody that's helping the poor around the world. If you do little to help the poor, how can the love of God be in you? Another really clear and concrete way to show love to others is is to meet their greatest need. Jesus has already done the greatest work of love when he provided a way of salvation for us by his sacrifice on the cross, and that met our greatest need. But God has given us a part in helping people to find forgiveness for their sins. We are to tell others the good news about Jesus. We can't save people, but we can help them to come to God and find salvation. So tell people about Jesus. Bring them to church. Give a friend a Bible. Ask some questions to steer a conversation toward spiritual things. Do whatever you can that will bring someone closer to God. That is the greatest act of love that you can do because it meets their greatest need. So, dear friends, let us love one another.